politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight to regain our lost liberties. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here on April 14th. My birthday, yes, it is yours truly's birthday today. What do I wish for my birthday? Well, I wish I would be a part of a movement that fought for what was just and virtuous and moral and constitutional and legal in the tradition of our republicanism as we have a movement that is fighting to dismantle and has already successfully dismantled everything we created. I just want people to fight. The rest is for God. And that is what we're here to do every day to create that movement that doesn't exist after years of dealing with this phony conservative movement. One of the things we talked about yesterday that we didn't have a movement for is crime. We used to have a movement to fight crime, not anymore. We have Republican governors left and right saying we need criminal justice reform. COVID fascism, the issue of our time, we don't have a movement All these conservative talk shows, you know, when it actually mattered, they either joined with it or were indifferent. So we're going to discuss both of these again today. Mainly today, we're going to get to the vaccines. I wanted to do a deep dive into what type of vaccines or non-vaccines are out there. What's the truth about how they work? What are the concerns? And we're going to have Dr. Ryan Cole on again, back by popular demand. He is just a walking encyclopedia on all things COVID and viruses and, and pathogens and immunology. He is just amazing. So we're going to have him on in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but I want to first get to just crime and clean up some points from yesterday. By the way, Dante Wright, I said white, W-H-I-T-E yesterday. That's what happens to me when I'm traveling and I barely have time to glance at anything. So for some reason I had in my brain, like the first time I saw his name, maybe it was spelled wrong somewhere, but it's Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Folks, you know that the police are not going to be there to protect you now. So you're going to have to learn how to protect yourself. Most people who own guns don't know how to use them. They don't know how to clear malfunctions. They don't know how to operate during a gunfight in a defensive situation. That's why I want you to join me and Rick Green of ConstitutionCoach.com for the best defense gun training in America. Uh, Rick Green, we've been doing this for a couple months together. He's been doing this for a few years where we go to Front Sight, Nevada, where they have the best firearms instructors to give you that ammo that you need in a defensive situation. There's two-day and four-day classes. Um, It was an honor to see some of you in February. I am going to be there on April 25th. That class is already closed. Looking forward to seeing you then. The next one is May 30th. I should be at that one as well. There's also June 6th. That's the final one before the summer, and it gets really, really hot. 
Then they have the fall ones in you know September 26th, September 30th, October 31st. Go to constitutioncoach.com. You could see their dates all the way going to December. Um, I don't know which ones I'll be at if you want to meet me, but don't let that stop you. I will be at the May 30th one if you want to see me then. Um, at night, we study the Constitution. During the day, we uh, study guns, and we're on the range all day. It's a lot of fun. You will be proficient in taking headshots out of the holster in less than two seconds um, by the end of the four-day course, especially. I recommend the four-day course. It's 90% off their typical training, um, just 110 bucks or 100 bucks for uh, two-day, 150 bucks for the four-day. Obviously, you do have to pay for your own supplies and accommodations, but it's a really, really good deal. You get to meet fellow patriots. So for my birthday today, sign up at constitutioncoach.com for the next available date. Now, folks, you will have to learn how to defend yourself because the cops ain't going to be doing it. What people don't realize, this happens every single time, every one of these unarmed black shootings. The guy was a saint. He was God's gift to the world. And I noted he had a criminal record. But it turns out it's more substantial than we thought. The UK Daily Times always count on the UK to dig up the stuff here that the media won't do. It turns out the warrant that was outstanding for him was built off an underlying charge in December 2019. Dante was arrested for pointing a gun at a woman's head and choking her while demanding uh, she give over the money that was on her person. He had a history of gun offenses. Then he was let out on just $40,000 bond on condition that he doesn't have guns. Well, he had a gun, and I also failed to check in with his parole officer because he was on parole for other stuff, as is always the case. Now, I can't confirm this, so I didn't put this in my column, but I do see on court records there's an aggravated robbery case from this February. So I'm trying to figure out if it's the same one, because this is the Minneapolis PD. That was a different city the original one. So it almost looks like this is a second one, but I can't confirm that yet. And I'm willing to bet anything that he has tons of juvenile stuff, but that stuff is all sealed. That's the point. Violent youth, but particularly black youth, get so many more chances than other people do. It's just the opposite of what they say. It's the exact opposite. The reason why his criminal record matters, as I said yesterday, is not because, oh, he should have been, he needed to die in this case or be shot. No one disagrees with that. The, the woman herself who shot him says it was a freak mistake that she grabbed for the taser. But the point is when they say, oh, they're being killed for the crime of driving while black or driving with an expired uh, you know, a license plate or you know, an air freshener hanging from the window. It's not true. They're killed because they're violent and unlike other people who are pulled over for a traffic stop that 
doesn't have to lead to death, and it doesn't lead to death because it's whatever. They don't do anything. These guys have outstanding warrants because they used to be in jail. They're no longer in jail, and now cops have to deal with them out on the road, and they get violent. And the more we attack the cops rather than the violent criminals, the more they fight with them. The more you fight with them, the more you have these situations. 99% of the time, it ends with either the police using appropriate force or often underwhelming force that puts themselves and others at risk. Once in a while, like anything else, you'll have a percentage of plane crashes where it's the other way around. But as I noted yesterday, let's focus on the real problem here. So I'll have more on that. We're going to focus more on crime as this continues to become an issue. We have the Floyd trial going on. Any other case, the Chauvin trial, any other case, he would never be convicted. There's also a couple things to watch as we head back to COVID now. Um, Idaho has a lot of good bills that are coming to the finishing line ahead of the end of their session. Um, They have two bills limiting the governor's power, requiring legislative uh, support to um, continue any... Uh, emergency beyond 60 days, which is very generous. It also bans them from quarantining healthy people and doing some other things. The governor is going to veto that. um, And, you know, hopefully we'll have a veto override. We have Holcomb in Indiana overriding a veto, uh, uh, vetoing a very weak very one of the weakest ones passed anywhere emergency reform is bill hb 1123 but there they could override with a simple majority so hopefully they'll do that we have west virginia ending their session with literally passing not a single limitation on their governor's power even though he's one of the worst republican governors he's really a democrat texas looks like it's going to be the second state after pennsylvania where the legislature is passing a constitutional amendment that's going to be on the ballot Pennsylvania's is going to be May 18th. Very important vote. Texas won't be until November 2nd. Uh, It's got to pass the House first, but it did pass the Senate, which would require the governor to declare, whenever he declares an emergency, to have an emergency session after 30 days. Because remember, in Texas, they are only in session every other year and only for like four months. So there's a lot of time where the governor could just run away without the legislature. Very important reform. We have a lot of other things I want to focus on. Keep letting, you know, informing me what's going on in your state. There's stuff about Biden and his commission to pack the Supreme Court. I have my own thoughts on that. I actually would encourage the Democrats to burn down their own judicial supremacist system they built. Let them do it. The bottom line is they're only doing it so they could basically influence Barrett and Kavanaugh and certainly Roberts to not overturning bad lower court opinions. That's kind of their leverage over them. But this is where we are. We can no longer trust our government to keep us safe, safe, to keep us healthy. Well, I mean, it was never their job to keep us healthy, but to keep us safe from criminals was their job And folks, that's why I need you to go pick out your perfect holster 
with that perfect firearm of yours. While ammunition is really going up, holsters are not. If you go to wethepeopleholsters.com, starting at just $40, you can get yourself the best custom-molded American holster. Um, Proprietary clip design allows for you to easily adjust both the Canton ride. You go to wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR, as in conservative review, CR. And while you're there, check out their printed hoodies. They have some cool apparel. Um, Also, very important, EDC tactical gun belts. So, folks, if you are coming out to the April, I mean, it might be too late for the April one. Um, I don't know how long shipping takes, but, you know, certainly if you're coming out for the May trip, you're going to need a good gun belt and a holster. The proper learning how to properly draw starts with a proper gun belt and holster. You cannot go with junk. Go to wethepeopleholsters.com, get a lifetime guarantee. Again, you could also get uh, an additional $10 off with offer code CR. So wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR, offer code CR. All right, folks, now we are back to our main course. Um, A lot of you have had questions about the vaccines. You wanted me to do a show more in depth. And and frankly, the reason why I focused on this issue less than any other part of it is just because it truly is the most scientific of all of them. Um, You know, when it comes to lockdowns and masks, I could read data, I could see reality, I could open my eyes. Um, But how vaccines work or don't work, what types, what are the concerns? This is something I wanted to have a real expert on. Um, Backed by popular demand is Dr. Ryan Cole. Um, you know, last time he was a walking encyclopedia for us on the early therapeutics, just explaining how the virus works, why some people are vulnerable to it, what to do about it, how we explain certain geographical and seasonal patterns. Well, today he is going to answer your questions on the vaccine. Um, he's a Mayo Clinic trained anatomic and clinical pathologist. He runs really what's the largest independent laboratory in Idaho. So uh, he's cultured tons of COVID cases. He's lived and breathed this virus for a full year. He also has a strong background in immunology anyway, so really knows all the aspects of the virus and the vaccines. And we are really excited to have him today. Dr. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Daniel, thanks for having me back. Well, we had such a good time last time, and we've spoken a lot off air Uh, There's so much to cover, but what's on everyone's mind today is the vaccine. Um, A lot of people felt in their gut, eh, you know, there's something a little bit different here, even if they weren't concerned about vaccines in the past and, you know, dutifully got their vaccines, vaccinated their kids. Everyone knows the people pushing this, people pushing the broader COVID response have been extremely political. Political science seems to be the only science that's been used. Then yesterday we get the news of uh, the government pulling their recommendation for the J&J vaccine um, over the blood clotting issue. I want to get to yesterday's news specifically at some point today and get your idea about the context, the magnitude of the problem, But if you could maybe take this from the beginning to explain in layman's terms how vaccines typically work, 
how each one of the supposed mRNAs or vaccines work in this case for COVID-19, and what are the, some of the baseline concerns based on that difference? Okay. Um, and I, like last time, I'd like to preface it with I've had all my childhood and many travel vaccines. Uh, my kids have had all their other vaccines. I have not had these shots. You know, I am pro-good vaccine. I am anti-bad science. Um, and these are experimental. And at this point, all of these shots, there's the Pfizer, Moderna, and no longer at the moment, J&J in the United States. And these are emergency authorized shots. They're per the emergency authorization. These are, quote, investigational vaccines, which you don't hear in the news. They take that word investigational off and they advertise them as, you know, safe and effective. And we'll, we'll get into, you know, how they actually calculate efficacy in a little bit here. But you know, Moderna and Pfizer are an mRNA platform. So it's basically a little software um, they take a sequence of the virus that codes for the spike protein, and that sequence they encase in a lipid capsule, and they inject that sequence into you. And what it's supposed to do is go into the cytoplasm of your cell, and your cell machinery takes that message, that mRNA, messenger RNA, and then it zippers it back and forth and codes it into the form of the spike. And then that spike goes through your... Um, cell out onto the membrane, and now you have a piece of the virus, not the whole virus. It's not coding for the whole virus, just that little piece. And that goes onto the surface of your cell. And then in theory, your body recognizes that spike as foreign. And then a bunch of white blood cells, T cells talk to each other, then they go talk to the B cells, and then your body makes an antibody against that spike. So, um, the theory and the, the science behind it is using that little message, um, basically hijacking um, your machinery to make a piece of the, the virus. So that's how those two work. And How is that different vac- from a typical, typical vaccine? Uh, very different. So we've never done this before on a large human scale. And that's what's interesting about this. We're rolling forth with something that we've never done to humankind before on this scale and hoping it works without knowing the long-term outcomes. We don't have any long-term safety data on these. And that's, you know, that's very concerning from that, you know, good science, bad science, medical point of view. And so that's very concerning, you know, wondering, okay, and, and we've seen already, significant numbers of adverse reactions and side effects. And unfortunately, in the vaccine adverse event reporting system through CDC and HHS, we've seen um, almost 3,000 deaths now, over 60,000 adverse reactions. And if you add in the adverse effects in Europe, um, over 4,000 deaths there, about 1,000 in the UK. And it's interesting to me, you know, when we were going through this last year, you know, symptomologically, everything was COVID and you hear, oh gosh, nothing is the vaccine in terms of adverse reaction. So it's kind of the flip opposite, almost hypocrisy of understanding. So that's very frustrating. But yeah, these have never been used um, on a large scale in humankind before. So what do you say never been used? Yeah, I just want to slow this down a little bit. Um, The bare basic for people to understand, if they had to give over to their friends in a couple of sentences, 
how is this scientifically um, and its mechanism different from a typical oh, yeah. vaccine? Yeah, so usually, yeah, so usually in a normal vaccine, we're taking a part of a pathogen, you know, a protein or a whole killed pathogen, and, you know, stabilizing it, making sure it's non-infectious, injecting that. So you just have a protein that gets injected or, or a whole pathogen, and then your body starts to form antibodies against that. So you don't end up you know, overtaking the cell machinery um, like these vaccines do or these investigational vaccines do. You're actually just like you would naturally encounter something in a normal infection, the proteins of that pathogen that's invading your body, whether it's the respiratory tract, GI tract, your body looks at those different proteins on the surface of that invader and naturally would make antibodies in a natural infection. Same way, you know, the historical vaccines have all done that same thing. Just take a part of it or a whole killed organism, then your body looks at it and does that same process. So so if, if I understand this correctly, a, a typical vaccine is like, you know, okay, you want to practice uh, defeating an opponent with martial arts. Now, you don't want to break the guy in with a really tough or strong opponent, so you take almost a dead body and throw it in front of someone, hey, practice punching, throw some punching kicks. So basically, yeah. in this case, you, you're, you're sure that it's a, it's a dead um, uh, pathogen, um, now, my analogy is not perfect because I guess the way the body would work is that once the body is used to that response, it would then know how to do it um, and it would defeat a real virus and it makes you immune. You're saying, whereas here, you are, you're, it's not what you're putting up in front of the body, it's you're taking over the body's mechanism to stimulate that reaction in the hope that it will almost almost create the scenario that the virus creates and then create a proper reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially um, these, these investigational shots are taking over your body to make a part of the pathogen. And, and we really haven't done that before. Yeah. Normally the other one would be kind of a, a weak opponent or a punching dummy or just part of the opponent or, you know, somebody that's just a sparring partner while you get strengthened against that sparring partner, that, that normal traditional protein vaccine or, you know, weakened pathogen or killed pathogen. So, yeah, and these, it's actually literally, I mean, they, they talk about it being a, a software uh, program taking over your software and you become the, the antigen, the protein-making factor yourself. And there's some problems with that. So so let, let's go over the problem. So you explain how it's different. Why is it mm -hmm. potentially more problematic? Well, it, it's problematic in the sense that there are so many unknowns, for one. And number two, the with mRNA, too little does nothing, too much can cause um, overreactions and historically can cause autoimmune type reactions because you get too much of a response and that excess uh, response in certain individuals um, down the road can have your body go a little more haywire in reaction, you know, to that dose. And then the other interesting thing is there's a set percentage of the population that has difficulty breaking down foreign RNA. And in some people, that stimulation, that 
continued production of that S protein doesn't shut off as quickly or as easily. Mm-hmm. So in some individuals, you can end up making too much S protein over time and then getting too much of an immune response to that. So if I'm not mistaken here, if you understand the mechanism of SARS-CoV-2 and the way it seems to work in people, isn't it true that this is perhaps the worst sort of virus to experiment with an mRNA, not a no-brainer virus to do it? Because the way you, you've always explained it to me, and you know you really did a good job last time on the show going through this, um, the virus is not so much a problem in and of itself. It's the inflammatory response from the body's um, unregulated or dysregulated immune system, particularly with people with deficient uh, vitamin D and, and other problems, in, in, in that it, the body's response goes haywire. So it's almost like you're speaking to that here. You're, you're stimulating the body's response in the hopes of it not going overboard which almost seems the opposite of our approach, which is to focus on things like ivermectin and early anti-inflammatory therapeutics that rather than spawning, almost getting you into danger, it only deals with treating the proper response to preempt the inflammatory um, response. It's almost like this risks creating the inflammatory response. Well, and that's why we are seeing adverse reactions and and that's the risk we're taking so we're we're giving a lot of shots to prevent a little bit of disease and and the primary endpoints if you even read the applications from all these companies their primary endpoint was to decrease a symptom so when you look at how efficacious these are you know that's that's the problem is you know okay so we're decreasing one or two symptoms and their endpoint was was just that not to provide immunity to prevent transmission they didn't even do those studies and Fauci just announced that a week or two ago saying hey we're now going to look at whether or not these prevent transmission and I'm like what what were you doing this entire last year so these shots if somebody, you know, you give it to a healthy individual, previously healthy, and now you're revving up an immune response uh, to these shots, now the question becomes, what are the adverse side effects in these people that otherwise would have been fine or would have been healthy or wouldn't have had a problem at all with SARS-CoV-2? Now we're introducing another potential problem. And again, we're seeing clots, we're seeing all sorts of neurologic side effects in in certain individuals, we are introducing a problem they may never have had previous to getting a shot under the understanding that they think they're getting, you know, 95% efficacy and immunity against this when really those efficacy endpoints were just 95% effective at decreasing one symptom. Um, And so, I mean, the calculations they do are are really, uh, I don't want to say disingenuous, but they're misleading in the sense that really, I mean, over 100 people would have to get a shot for one person to have one decrease of a symptom. And that's, you know, they're claiming that's 95% efficacy because they play with, um, you know, risk reductions versus absolute risk reductions, which they left out of their uh, calculations they submitted. So, I mean, it gets really statistical. I don't want to get into that. But really, you're correct. At the end of the day, we're, you know, putting something into people's bodies the majority of people do just fine against COVID. Um, obviously, we know the risk groups, but now we're putting a healthy population at risk for side effects from something that we've never done to humanity before. So, 
we've we've explained, I guess, Pfizer, Moderna, the mRNA. Um, I, I know I cut you off there before, but I, I think now I want to come back to it. J and J, that's in the news, obviously. So, didn't that work more tr- like a traditional vaccine, where we gave you a piece of the inactive pathogen? No, actually, it's kind of interesting. So, this is also kind of experimental as well. Um, in this case, they take a different virus, an adenovirus, a common cold virus, and they knock out the infective genes, and then they splice in the DNA that codes for the spike protein. And then when they inject that, that goes into your cell, and then that DNA gets transcribed into messenger RNA. So it's one step more, and then the messenger RNA makes the spike protein, and then that process becomes the same. But the problem is with DNA being the first step, you know, there's the theoretical risk and the, you know, in vitro risk of reverse transcribing that into other um, sequences that could, you know, in some small studies and, you know, fractions of a percent could intercalate back into your, your own cellular machinery. But the problem, the problem with adenovirus, we've used them for like gene therapy since the late 90s trying to use them as a vector to get a gene into the body. And we've known with adenovirus-type therapies for literally decades now that one of the complications um, is clotting. And whether the, the shell of the virus is triggering that clotting or whether it's stimulating, you know, we're hypothesizing as of yesterday's news that there's a platelet factor that causes an antibody to clump your platelets when this type of virus is introduced. Or it could even just be some of the naked DNA from that weakened virus itself. So it's, it's not quite like the old vaccines because they're splicing something into it that they want to still hijack the cell machinery to make that spike protein. So the question everyone's asking from yesterday is, you know, on the on paper, they're saying there were six cases. And obviously, you know, to us, we always look at things statistically, and that doesn't sound like a lot. It doesn't sound like something to shut off the vaccine for. What is really going on with that? And number two, why is it only J&J that is getting hit with this? And it's kind of a mechanism of action because of that extra step. And then the, you know, the adenovirus itself could be causing some of the immunogenicity, the reactivity. You know, and, and when we hear six out of you know, 6.8 million shots given, well, the, the challenge is, and Harvard did a study in 2010 showing that adverse events are reported at a rate of 1%. So that six people, you could probably calculate into 600 people or more. Um, and, and, and that's the challenge. They don't know the degree to which this is happening. And when it's inducing clotting on that major scale, and we, we've obviously seen you know, the gal in Virginia that died and the gal in Nebraska um, in critical care right now, how many of these are happening at a micro-clotting uh, level? Mm. And, and they don't know that. I mean, how many thousands are having not as severe of a response, but still they need to be looking at platelet counts in individuals that have gotten these shots. And now here's the big problem, if you don't mind me hitting on this. In my medical opinion, before anyone gets any vaccine, they should be tested for active virus at the time. Because if you're forming an antibody and you're one of these, quote, asymptomatic carriers, you have the virus and maybe you have low-grade disease and don't even know it, if that virus is bound to parts of your body, your heart, your brain, your uh, blood vessels, 
and you get a shot and start making an antibody, and that antibody binds to the tissues where that virus is, now you can get a self-attack against your own tissues. And that's one thing that we are not doing scientifically. We're just lining people up, giving them a shot in the arm, and not going, um, what if they already have the disease? Could we be causing excess attack against those individuals. And that, you know, from a medical point of view, I think a lot of these adverse reactions are probably because of that, because we know how widespread the virus is in certain areas and parts of the population. Is that a problem always? Because I want to get to another problem with vaccinating while that particular disease is circulating, which we typically haven't done. But is this more of a concern with the uniqueness of the way they've structured these vaccines, or would that be a concern, do, uh, you know, injecting anyone with a vaccine while they might potentially have that particular virus? Well, in theory, yes. Um, but with this particular virus, because of how widespread it is, usually we do, we do vaccines preventatively. We know, you know, the risk of a vaccine within a population over a set period of time. So vaccines generally are to prevent that next season's illness. We generally aren't going along and vaccinating in the middle of an outbreak. And, and that's, you know, why we haven't, you know, per se seen this historically. You know, we have a, a virus that has a, a quick spreading rate, the R0. Um, and when, when we do it in the middle of an outbreak like, like this, we, you know, predispose ourselves to more of these reactions. And then the other challenge we have, the sequence that we're using right now, is really looking at last year's variant, the Wuhan variant or the D614G. So what they've coded for is, you know, trying to neutralize or at least decrease symptoms from last year's variant in the midst of the, you know, UK, South Africa, Brazil, LA, the other variants taking over. And so we may actually be putting evolutionary selection pressure towards the other variants. But, but is that a problem? I mean, typically, uh, things don't mutate um, more severely. I mean, another study came out about the Kent variant in England. It was, we've seen a number of them, that it's not true, this panic about it being more severe, um, that there really is no evidence of it being more severe. In fact, in England, they don't really have almost any deaths at all now. It seems like they've hit herd immunity there, and that immunity is holding for other variants. Um, but So typically, let's just take the vaccines out of the equation for a minute. When you're just dealing with natural infection, typically when you're naturally infected with something, we never worry about mutations. You seem to be immune, you're immune. But I'm, I'm seeing you know a lot of people, respected people, uh, on, on all sides kind of give off this sense of fear, concern, that if you vaccinate during a time of circulation and evolution of the virus, that you're going to create a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of almost strengthening it. Can you explain how that, how that would work? Yeah, I mean, essentially, instead of a laboratory gain-of-function study, you're doing a, a population gain-of-function study. Because when you are making antibodies with a vaccine, you're only doing it against a small part of the virus. And that's that S1 subunit, that tip of the spike. Whereas in a natural infection, and, and this may be why, you know, in certain populations, we're seeing almost that herd immunity now. Because, you know, with the, the number of genes within the virus itself, you know, 28, 29 genes, you get 
antibodies naturally in an infection against all parts of the virus, not just against the spike. So with a vaccine, you're only targeting one one area of the virus, whereas in a natural infection, a broad natural infection, you know, similarity between all these variants still exists on those nucleocapsid proteins, the membrane proteins, envelope proteins. So you, you in a natural infection, get hundreds and hundreds of antibodies against the entire you know, confirmation or, or shape and proteins of the virus. Whereas with a vaccine, you're targeting just one small area. So you may get a few neutralizing antibodies with a vaccine, but you may get dozens and dozens and dozens of um, antibodies in a natural infection. And then your uh, T-cell memory, that, that also gets stimulated at a different rate in a vaccination versus a natural infection. So in those who have had, say, that Kent, that UK variant, and have already had a natural infection, you know, they have, even though you may not recognize the spike as the same, you recognize the rest of the virus as the same, so the body can neutralize those. Now, with the South Africa variant, we're seeing breakthrough in Israel. I mean, with the Pfizer vaccines in Israel, they, they vaccinated, you know, a large portion of their population, but they're realizing they're getting a lot of breakthrough cases uh, with the South African variant because the vaccine, that spike is so different, and now they only have antibodies against that spike, but they, they don't have antibodies like in a natural infection against the other parts of the virus itself. So let me get this straight. The other side of this debate are creating their own self-made problem. They're basically saying that they have to continue the restrictions and masks, which, as we discussed many times, don't work anyway, but in their mind they do. So you have to continue it um, because of the variants. And we're like, well, who cares about the variants? Well, they're saying, and they're the same crowd pushing the vaccines. So you're saying they have it exactly backwards. Really, the natural immunity, which they're completely ignoring and acting as if, like, it's nothing and doesn't exist. If you had the virus, it's as if you didn't have the virus in their mind in terms of restrictions and masks and just all, just all in all concern of getting the virus. But if you get the vaccine, well, you know, that you should be pretty good. But you're saying, if anything, to the extent there's what to worry about the um, variants, it's not necessarily that it's more severe and certainly not that it's going to break through natural immunity, but that it would break through some of the vaccines. Correct. And that's why we're seeing breakthrough cases of COVID, because we're seeing that, you know, it's not necessarily preventing acquisition nor transmission of disease. It's just decreasing symptoms. So their end point with these, uh, quote, therapies really is you know, decreasing disease, but really what we want is to be creating immunity. And so the argument is, yes, are we we uh, unnaturally selecting for um, worse variants? Um, And instead of, you know, focusing on, say, early therapies, and and see, this is the difference, because so next year, what are they going to do? I mean, there's so many variants around the world now, how many shots are we going to give? Are we going to keep playing this game of chase the variant, chase the variant with a booster shot, booster shot, not knowing what the long-term side effects in terms of, you know, disease from the vaccines themselves down the road could be, and the, you know, accumulation of lipid nanoparticles that we've really never put in humans before either that could cause their own autoimmune reactions, which they we know they do. Um, so yeah, give a shot, give a shot, give a shot. Or do we give a therapy, you know, uh, an antibody can be forever. If it's a good antibody, great. If it's a bad one, that could be a problem down the road in terms of other complications, disease, bad reactions. But with therapies, therapies are short, therapies are effective and therapies, 
um, are reversible. You don't have a chronic long problem with those therapies. So yeah, are we selecting for um, worse variants by doing something against nature that we should be leaving alone? That's a very good question. So here's the question I'd ask you. You've convinced me that certainly someone my age, you know, my 30s, I'd I'd be insane to get it. Um, I'm not even going to get into the fact that Pfizer and the government are now um, pushing this on kids and 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 giving it to kids and at a trial level, and they're going to probably make it available very soon. I mean, they already have it as young as 16. I mean, that's just just shocks the consciousness that we'd even uh, do that. But what about people that are prone to get COVID bad potentially? For those people, so obviously, even if you take the you know twenty five hundred deaths, sixty thousand adverse events, and say it's a fraction, and really it's a lot more than that, and they're underreporting it, and certainly it's hypocrisy from their end, the fact that they make it seem like there's zero risk, and then COVID they overstate, but nonetheless, what about for someone that legitimately is very concerned about COVID, they're older with diabetes and a heart condition, you know. Isn't an endpoint of reducing severe illness kind of worth it? Or would you, is there something you're more concerned about long term here? Well, and, and again, you know, as I, I, I've stated before, it's a risk benefit calculation, just like you're stating. And it's your body, your choice. I mean, these are optional in the EUA and all of the declarations from the FDA, these are all optional, optional. So your body, your choice, if you feel like you're in that high-risk category and, and you're going to benefit from it and it keeps you out of the hospital or keeps you from dying, that's great. Um, that's your choice. But, again, if you're willing to take on the risks, and we are not technically hearing that people are getting their full informed consent of what the risks yes, are or yes. are not, now, I mean, to your point, you know, I treated my 78-year-old mom with ivermectin. She had COVID better in two days. Um, I treated an 83-year-old, my dad, never got COVID. 84-year-old, obese diabetic, better in two days. 91-year-old, obese diabetic asthmatic, better in two days. So with treatments, even in those risk categories, if, yes. our, if our officials would look at these treatments... Uh, you know, then you don't run the long-term risk. But, but, but again, you know, your body, your choice, I know there yeah. are some very fragile people, and that's who the virus tends to be taking on the higher percentage. Um, if, if they feel like it's going to benefit them, then that's their choice. But not to yeah. force it on a population. No, exactly. With- exactly. I, I want to do this scientifically. To me, we already know they're hypocritical. We already know that... This is totally experimental, but in their messaging, they're marketing it as candy, as Tums, as Advil, as as better than the flu vaccine. That in itself, we already know is empirically false and whatever. But what I'm saying is from, you know, we have a smart audience. They make their own decision. They want to they know the government is being manipulated or they're manipulating us. But generally, if you're older and you're concerned you know, we're the ones that look level-headed and, you know, the numbers are much higher than they're saying, but they don't appear to be that enormous. Could you take it from there and describe the fact that this might just be the tip of the iceberg? Isn't the bigger concern here? And if you could talk a little bit about some of the history of the development of mRNA with SARS-1 
and why the FDA stopped the trials, what they saw long-term that we haven't even had the time to even have a trial on. And if you could also, in your answer, just describe a little bit how the whole development and approval of the FDA was very different from the way they approached this in the past. Okay, so historically with SARS-CoV-1, MERS, other coronaviruses, when we made vaccines in the animal models against the spike protein, when we injected the um, experimental groups, the mammals, with the vaccine and then re-exposed them to a wild-type variant of the virus, the vaccinated group versus the non-vaccinated group did far, far worse and had hyperimmune reactions. In one study with ferrets, 100% had lung pathology in the vaccinated group, but not in the non-vaccinated group. So in the family of coronaviruses, if you give an antibody that down the road is a non-neutralizing weak antibody, the immune system, when it sees the virus again down the road, can hyperreact compared to the immune system that never got the virus. We had a whole disastrous example of that with dengue fever vaccines in the Philippines, and 600 children died, and 100,000 kids now have a bad antibody for the rest of their life for the, you know, the next season of dengue for the rest of their life. So when we've looked at coronavirus vaccines, they seem to be fine up front when you make an antibody and down the road, they end up causing problems. Um, same thing happened with a cat coronavirus trial. And then the cats ended up with this horrible swelling of the belly of peritonitis and a lot of the cats died. So with coronavirus vaccines and certain families of vaccines, we have to be careful because we need to know long-term how they're going to react. And that's the problem here, um, to your point. These were quickly developed, and the animal trials were started side-by-side side with the human trials. And so we really don't have the completion of a, a lot of those animal trials. And in some of the in vitro side-by-side -side studies already, we've seen at least in, in the cells from the animal trials that about 3% of the animals are showing this bad antibody. And, you know, so say 100 million people get vaccinated, that could be 3 million people that end up, you know, with that potential bad antibody and that potential down-the-road reaction. So we don't have long-term safety. And we know with this family of viruses in particular, and I know that they've tried to engineer around this and try to decrease the possibility, but from a historical point of view, and history is a great teacher, um, we know that this can happen and our fingers are crossed that it won't. So we don't have those long-term sure. data. So this has been a very quickly developed shot with a platform of technology we've never used before with no proof that it's preventing transmission or acquisition of disease. And so we're literally, it's, quote, a shot in the dark at this point. Wow. No, I mean, to me, that latter point is what really gets me. Because like I said, we don't believe in looking at things emotionally like the other side does, even though they're being hypocritical. I would be consistent and say, look, you look at the data, and from what has happened so far, if you really are high risk for COVID, then, you know, it's certainly a, the shot is not a nothing. It's a greater risk than they're making it out to be. But every single person I know has gotten and hasn't had a problem. But what gets me is is the long-term unknown. And, and, and because the way you explained it logically, 
um, why we're concerned about the inflammatory response of the immune system to this particular virus. And then you look at the history with the animal experiments and the autoimmune diseases that, that it caused, it kind of adds up. It's not just random. It makes sense. And yes, they obviously prima facie wouldn't have just left it alone, picked up where they left, uh, you know, 15 years ago. Um, they obviously worked on it, but how much? And, you know, even if it's just a fraction of the problems that it caused back then, that's still a big concern, which is leads us to the final point, which we keep reiterating is if we have early and prophylactic therapeutics that directly address the inflammation and preempt it and reverse it uh, rather than playing chicken with it, then why not use that? Um, you know, when we know there's no long term um problems could you speak a little bit to the juxtaposition of the government's excuses for not green lighting ivermectin and things like that saying they don't like the data it's not strong enough juxtaposed to the standards of data they're using for the vaccines <laughs> yeah and that's a tough one i mean when when the government holds the patent for the spike sequence and licenses it to moderna you kind of scratch your head and go, okay, their interest is in the vaccine. So when they look at efficacies of other treatments and modalities, they can't approve a vaccine if there's an efficacious treatment to prevent or treat a disease. In the FDA EUA, it states that, that if there's a treatment, they cannot approve a vaccine. So if they're literally holding the patent to this, their interest would not be in approving a medication. There are 50 trials around the world, 16,000 patients with ivermectin. You look at the meta-analysis, it decreases death anywhere from 68. If you put in you know, the worst of the, the studies, up to 86% decreases death rate. And not just ivermectin, there are other treatments, budesonide, hydroxychloroquine, zinc, um, fluvoxamine, colchicine. I mean, there's multiple mo modalities that decrease death rate significantly. So, you know, when they look at a trial like this and they get, you know, a decrease of a symptom versus actual efficacy of decreasing death like we know these treatments do, it's really crazy. And and even as, as a, a therapeutic construct, you know, you mentioned vitamin D, like I've, I've hammered that in a lot of talks that I've, I've mentioned, you know, we're, we're giving vaccines at the end of a winter season in order to even form an antibody, you have to have adequate vitamin D levels. And so we're giving shots and expecting them to work and not giving that public health message of, oh, by the way, if you want to form you know, a strong <laughs> antibody, you actually have to have a normal vitamin D level for the and, immune system. And to that's dark. the bottom line, that the same reason we can't trust them and we, they've been proven false on the non-pharmaceutical interventions, how do we trust them on the pharmaceutical interventions based on the lies put out on hydroxychloroquine, the lies put out on ivermectin, the obfuscation? You put it all together, and it's like, I understand they um, basically absolved the companies from liability. I get it, right? Because to make it economical to de develop it on an emergency level quickly, I get it. But the problem is then their guidance has to reflect that. They have to treat the public like adults and say, look, you know, most people, COVID is not a problem. Some people, it is a problem. You're worried about it. We have a vaccine. It's experimental. Here's what we know about it. Seems to work to some level. There's some risk. Um, there's no, just know there's, we absolve them from liability. And, and I understand that, but be, be 
<laughs> be open about that. Oh, and by the way, here's how vitamin D works. Here's why people are vulnerable. Here's what you could be doing. Here's other stuff. And then let people decide what they want to pursue. But they're gaslighting the vaccine as if it's like Tums or, or something like that. And then they're treating this stuff like it's uh, toxic. Then, then it's like, I don't know what to trust anymore, which leads me to my final question for you is broadly based on vaccines. You know, I've never been anti-vaccine, and I think you haven't either been. Um, to me, I always knew there was a degree of cronyism and a lot of money being made off of it, but, you know, you could have two things true at the same time. You could have something that works, and, you know, that they make a ton of money too. Um, but, you know, a lot of people in my audience have been pushing me over the years. I know a lot of, I do have a contingent in this audience. They're very concerned about vaccines in general. And I look at, this and I say, what else are they lying to us about? And I look at the fact that, you know, I was born in the 80s. And back when I was born, I don't know, there were maybe three shots around in total. Now there's like 30, even before before COVID. I you know, is this necessary of all these new shots? Are they do they, do they work? Are they necessary? Or is there cronyism and false science going on in other ones? I mean, this is just what concerns a lot of us. We have no way of even knowing. And, and that is a challenge. I mean, do we need a shot for everything? Um, you know, if you take care of your body, you know, don't eat as much sugar. Don't be as inflamed. Um, you know, get, get your health in good shape. The, the human body is an amazing thing if we take care of it. Now, we as Americans are a perfect setup for what we're going through. 80% of us are metabolically unwell, insulin-resistant, leptin-resistant, you know, 42% obese, 73% overweight. You know, compared to the rest of the world, the virus is like, oh, there's a good target. So if we basically focus on our health as a nation instead of, you know, I don't know, patsying around and saying, oh, it's okay, you know, everybody just be who you are, like, you know, what if, what if we focused on actual national health as, you know, focus on wellness, focus on, on being a strong immune system against any invader? You know, a lot of these things, you know, since we've gone through years of interesting shots that, you know, I, I, again, I'm not anti-vaccine, but a lot of these things, I'm like, well, why does a baby need a hepatitis B vaccine? That's crazy. You know, things like that. You just scratch your head and go, what are we doing? We have an industry that has no liability yeah. for these things. And, and the message, you know, the message I'm trying to give, if we can do the things for immune health, obviously they make no money. That's their concern. But we have a healthier population. You know, these things that I'm talking about are generic and cheap and, and simple to do. But it's the will of a, a nation and a mindset that are we going to be dependent on the next pill, the next shot, are we going to take responsibility for who we are and our own health? And will our public health officials actually give the proper message of, hey, let's shape up our national health. Here's the things we do. There's some basic things they know we know, and it's being ignored. I mean, the, the body is an amazing thing when it's kept healthy. And if we do the wrong things to the body, like I said, we're a perfect setup, unfortunately, for something like this. That's why so many parts of the world are doing so much better because they do focus on those things that we tend yep. to ignore. And, and again, from my end, it's the obfuscation. It's what they don't say that Correct. really 
really Correct. sheds light on what they do say. Because, you know, yeah, if, they the were, transparency, yeah, yeah, if, if they were all absent. into the early therapeutics and the vitamin D and the and the whole health message, and then also push the masks and the vaccine, so then I could respect it more. But the fact that it's like they have literally not just obfuscation, but opposite strategies and messaging and standards of of evidence and trials that they're using for one another it make, makes me seem like, wait a minute, what is the agenda here? And I think we know what the agenda is. Um, but to end on this note, I, I want to get your thought on the Columbia ivermectin study. So I was waiting for this. You know, ivermectin oh. was batting a thousand. Every study was showing it's like more so than hydroxychloroquine. And hydroxychloroquine, they had to have the porn star funded fake study in the Lancet that had to be retracted with the fake data there. I was like, they got to be cooking up something. Now, they don't have anything negative on it. They just came out with a study from Columbia saying, well, we don't really see efficacy in it. Could you explain what went behind that study and the effort to get uh, JAMA to retract it? Yeah, um, statistical gamery um, in the Columbia study. So in order to even have statistical power in that study, they would have needed um, 72 final patients for analysis out of their several hundred. And in their effect group, they ended up with eight. So actually five benefited and three didn't from the ivermectin. And it was really a mild, moderate symptom. Now, the problem is there was ivermectin available over the counter. And so there was mixing and matching of who was truly placebo, who was actually getting over-the-counter treatment. So not well tracked for one. And then when you have eight people for your final statistical analysis, you know, that, that's not enough power for any statistical study. And then their conclusion was, we don't see any benefit, when actually it was a five to three benefit. So, <laughs> you know, but really you would have need, needed 72 to draw a conclusion at all. So they drew a wrong conclusion off a poor amount of data in a poorly designed and controlled study. But they did it just like, you know, the Surgisphere studies with hydroxychloroquine, like, hey, look, it doesn't work. And they draw a conclusion because, again, why would anyone want to use a two, three cent generic that can save lives? It's the funniest thing because the WHO and, and NIH's lines have always been, we don't have the, the sample sizes of all those studies showing ivermectin decreases mortality, hospitalization by like 80% or so. Um, the sample size is too small. So then they banty about this one with a super-duper small sample size to say it doesn't work when actually kind of it does if you want to indulge that uh, small sample size. So um, we'll right. see what happens there. There is an effort from dozens of doctors. They signed a letter asking JAMA to retract that. Um, Dr. Cole, thanks so much for joining us as always. This has been really, really enlightening. Folks, send me your comments, questions, and concerns you have for Dr. Cole. Uh, I could always follow up with him and speak about it on tomorrow's show. And we are out of time till tomorrow. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. Stay knowledgeable and stay empowered.